Welcome to The Birth Collective, a podcast to honour the birth journey collectively from conception, pregnancy, through to birth, breastfeeding and beyond. I'm your host, Tina Pullen, and in each episode, I'll be joined by experts in the birth space, as well as mums at different stages in their birth journey, sharing their knowledge and experiences. of the Birth Collective podcast. Today I have Olivia with us who's going to be sharing her birth story. Hi Olivia. Hi Tina, it's nice to be on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be here. I know you've got a little one so I know how hard that can be. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name's Olivia and I'm a midwife and I work in a big tertiary birthing unit in Sydney and I've been a midwife for about seven or eight years now and although I work in a high-risk setting um, my true midwifery values and beliefs lie within the home birth sort of natural normal birth setting which will come through um, this episode I guess Um, and you'll get to see a little bit about home birth and why I'm so passionate about it. So I have a little girl named Delara and she's just turned eight months old um, and she's my first little baby Um, and I have a husband his name is Eli yeah it's just a cute little family that we've got now. I can't believe she's eight months already that's crazy. I know So tell us a little bit about your pregnancy. How did that go? Um, So I might just start with getting pregnant if if you want me to. Yeah. Um, I've always had really super irregular periods since I can remember from getting my periods at, I think, 13. They were always like I'd get one and then a couple of months would go by and then I'd get another and they were just all over the shop. And at first I was told, oh, you're just young and, you know, just wait and see how things go with your body. And then I was on the pill for almost 10 years. Um, And so obviously I didn't know anything about my cycle. And I just thought, oh, by the time I get off the pill now, you know, my cycle will probably be normal because I'm older. Um, And so I thought, well, I better get off the pill a little bit earlier than when I decide I want to fall pregnant just in case I, you know, don't get a regular period and it takes a really long time. Mm. So about... Oh, about six to eight months before I was really planning to get pregnant, I went off the pill. Um, and yes, my periods were still super irregular, like 40 days, 50 days, and sometimes it'll be 30 and then it'd be 50 again. So it was all over the shop. And I started doing some research and I found um, PCOS to Wellness, mm. Bridget from Instagram, um, who talks a lot about PCOS and Mm. I've basically self-diagnosed myself that I've got PCOS with all the symptoms and um and I had had an ultrasound of my ovaries when I was younger and they said yes you've got multiple cysts on them so I was like well that's what I have and what am I going to do about you know trying to conceive because if I'm getting a period every like 50 to 60 days it's going to take like double the length yeah um so I got um into some research and things to do so I um started drinking her 
um, sisterhood tea, which was really good. And within a month or two months of drinking that, I started to get my cycles were a little bit shorter, which was great. Um, And I actually went on a really big lifestyle modification diet. So um, I basically ate a vegan diet minus sugar as well, just to see if that would, you know, just being a little bit healthier, if that would help my hormones. Yeah, they started to regulate a little bit. And within, I think, maybe five or six months, they were getting closer to the 30 days, um, but still not consistent. So what I did, because once you get on that baby track, you just want to get pregnant straight away. I don't know why. Like even if you give yourself that, I want to be pregnant in a year, as soon as you start trying, you're like, nah, I want to be pregnant now. Mm. So <laughs> I've got the um, maybe baby ovulation kit um, because I was I couldn't really use the um, ovulation sticks because my cycles were too long yeah. and they only give you 10. So I had to buy like four packets just to get through one cycle. Um, so I got this like saliva ovulation kit and it worked and yeah as soon as I got the okay from that that month I was pregnant wow I had kind of similar um cycles as well before getting pregnant well actually not I wasn't even thinking of getting pregnant but then because I got diagnosed with PCOS I went down that same road to try and figure out how to regulate my cycle and I love that page really good one PCOS to wellness sharing yeah lifestyle changes diet I haven't tried the tea though looks good yeah and I also drank her uh, postpartum tea as well which I really loved that's awesome so interesting she's got a lot of interesting from there for your hormones just simple things as well and it's like we we don't think about it till we want to get pregnant I just wish there was more education for like teenagers talking about how important hormonal health is and your periods like it's not a just a um, nuisance or it's just you know something you have to put up with yeah a lot of young girls are ashamed that they have their period and when I was on this journey I was like so excited to get my period and just a different way to look at it you just think oh my god my body is working how it should work like we should be celebrating this and not you know hiding it yeah exactly have you got your period back since giving birth no, I don't, which is great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is good. But it'll be interesting to see what your cycles are like post-birth because I know a lot of people, well, it can change for, um, you know, for everyone. Everybody's different. But I know a lot of people have their cycles regulate or get better after having babies or sometimes they can be heavier. Well, hopefully they get better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So as soon as I fell pregnant I knew that I definitely wanted to have a home birth so I started after I had my seven week scan I and to make sure everything was like there was just one baby to be first of all (laughs) um I started looking for a private midwife um and like I know a few a few of my friends that I work with other midwives have had home births as well and it started to get around the time where home birth midwives were really um taking on a lot of clients and getting really booked up really quickly. Mm. Um, So I didn't really have too many options and I ended up booking um, Melanie and she was really great. And she'd come to my house for all of my appointments, which was really nice. And it was more just like a little 
a little chat that we would have and it was very comfortable and you know my husband could be there and really we would talk more and then have just the rest of the appointment like a quick measure and a listen to baby and my blood pressure and all that sort of stuff and Mm. all my blood tests and things she organized for me and they were all just if I wanted to do them there was never any pressure by her to say you have to do something um, which is what I really love because you know healthcare is a personal thing and you shouldn't have to be forced into doing something that you don't feel comfortable in and Mm. it's our job as midwives to give the information and offer and if the person doesn't want to do that then that's great and that's fine and that's their choice where I feel like a lot of women feel very pressured in the hospital system to kind of conform I guess yeah so um, I knew I really wanted really low risk minimal intervention and of course if I needed to do something for my baby or myself I would but I just felt like I didn't want to be in that situation where I felt pressured into doing anything so yeah everything was pretty relaxed and I had hypothyroidism so I had to go on thyroxine for that and I just saw a private endocrinologist so I was still able to have Melanie as my main care provider um, and home and have a home birth it didn't make me any more high risk yeah by having that you mentioned that you work in a high risk setting so I mean I think a lot of people would assume because you work in the hospital that you're comfortable in the hospital and that's where you would choose to birth so why were you interested in home birthing um so I've done a lot of research so basically whenever evidence comes out from controlled random control trials and things like that so all the best evidence that we have available today it takes something like 17 years for that evidence to come into practice Mm. and the thing that I was seeing through my work is policies are not written based on evidence mostly mostly they're based on culture previous policies that were written and the cultural norm of the hospital system every hospital has their own policy so to me if something is the best evidence then how come a different hospital down the road can do something different to this hospital Mm. I wanted my care to be up-to-date current best evidence and not just this is how we've always done it type of thing Um, so the great thing about midwives private midwives is they have that available evidence straight away and they can use it and put it into practice straight away. They don't have to wait for the hospital 17 years later to bring out a new policy and say, yes, this is in the evidence what we have found. And they also know that the number one most protective factor to prevent stillbirth is to have continuity of care with a known care provider. Mm -hmm. So continuity of care is the most important thing for a woman and her baby. And we didn't have that at our hospital unless you had had a private obstetrician. And I just am of the belief that if you're a healthy woman and with a healthy pregnancy and you're not sick, that you don't need to see an obstetrician. An obstetrician is there for when things are not going right and that you need their expert expertise. So I felt as, you know, a young woman who's healthy 
healthy and, you know, with a lot of information at my hands, why not choose the healthcare provider that's going to let me have the most intervention-free birth that I wanted? Exactly. And, yeah, that uh, annoys me so much that in this particular area, there is no midwifery group practice. And yeah, something we've so, been trying to get for so long and it's just a barrier after a barrier after, like, it's just always another reason why it can't be done. And I just feel really sad for all the women who don't get experience having continuity with a midwife. It's really sad. I mean, a lot of people don't even know that there is the option to get your own midwife, to hire a private midwife. And it's just, yeah, it's worth looking into. And I mean, this is why I have you on the podcast today so that you can talk to us a little bit about home birthing, but also when things don't quite go to plan. Yeah. And also like for people that don't want to give birth at home, it doesn't mean that you can't have a private midwife. Mm -hmm. You can have all your care done with a private midwife. And then if you choose to go and birth in hospital with them as either if they have admitting rights. So I know at Westmead Hospital, some of the private midwives can be there. Um, Or if in another hospital, they can just be there as your support and um, just maybe an advocate for you yeah and I know some midwives and this is worth checking out some midwives do have a partnership with a private obstetrician so if for some reason you know towards the end of your pregnancy there's indication that you know maybe you need a plan c-section or you need an obstetrician there then you will know the obstetrician and they work with your midwife. So that's also another thing to consider if anyone is um, interested. And I think that's really ideal, actually, because that's, you know, a little bit about what my birth story is like. You know, why not have the best of both worlds? And if you don't need the obstetric care, then you, you know, everything is normal. And that's great. So you've done all this preparation for your birth. You've got a private midwife. Um, Were you doing anything else to prepare your body for birth? So obviously I did your course, the hypnobirthing course, which Mm -hmm. I loved. It was so great. But I was very aware. So I've done the, I don't know if you've talked about spinning babies a little bit with like maternal positioning, but essentially making sure that your baby is in a great position for birth because birth like birth position of the baby can impact your labor and your birth significantly. And I had done a practitioner's course in it and so like at work I was like the spinning babies type of like guru that would be like put her in this position if the baby's this way to help move the baby into a good position everyone would be like where do you do with the peanut ball of the arm would be like this is what you do um no you did that so I yeah so I was like super thinking about like oh my god every day don't sit back, Olivia. Don't recline. Don't lounge around. I would sit on a ball every day. I would eat my dinner on a ball. I would refuse to lie on my back. I would always lie on like my left side to try and encourage the baby over to that side. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of spinning babies. Um, I also did core and floor restore. If if you want to link to her, she's got mm-hmm. a great And I listened to her um, birthing classes as well, which are free and amazing. And I did her pregnancy programs just to keep my um, core on my floor, you know, nice and engaged and prepared for birth. And I was a big believer in the dates Mm. um, because there's some really great 
evidence about dates for helping your labor to be um, spontaneous, keeping your membranes intact and, and having a shorter labor. So I started them at 34 weeks and I ate three big ones every day. And then the usual um, raspberry leaf tea from 37 weeks and some hand expressing. Oh, actually, I also did osteo from since about oh, 30 yeah. weeks just to make sure like all my ligaments were in line and everything was in the best condition it could be for the birth because um, I was really worried about having like a posterior baby and mm-hmm. having a really long prodromal labor at home and getting tired and just the labor wearing me out and having to go into hospital. So I chose um, not to do the 75 gram blood glucose test. So mm. it's actually an option if you don't want to do a GDM test, you don't have to, um, but you do need to do some sort of monitoring to make sure that you don't have diabetes and you're just letting it go under out of control. Yeah. Um, so I chose to do at home monitoring, um, which I did for uh, two weeks and I would measure my blood sugars like after every meal and a fasting like you would if you were diabetic just to see how my sugars were going and my sugars were all perfect and my midwife Melanie was very happy with that um, so I didn't end up doing the test because the GDM cutoff line is different in different places as well um, so I just thought I'd rather know exactly what my sugar's doing for a whole two week period. And I would feel more comfortable knowing that they've been good over that period than just one day. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. One day yeah. that will just completely change, well, for a lot of people, change the course of your pregnancy care or even how the birth goes. Yeah, exactly. So I was actually really paranoid that I would get diabetes and not be able to have my home birth. So, but I was very happy not to. Um, and the other only pregnancy symptom that I had, so I didn't get any of the morning sickness, which was really great. Mm. Um, but I did get Braxton Hicks contractions from about 16 weeks. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So when I first started getting them at around 16 weeks, I was really um, worried that, you know, maybe I might lose this baby. I was having them pretty intense and pretty regularly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and my midwife said, you know, I got them really early as well in my pregnancy, but I think if you, if you want to, you should go and have it, your cervix checked. So I went and had a cervical, um, length done by ultrasound and it was all normal. So I just had to kind of let go of that fear. And I had them through the whole pregnancy all the time and nothing ever changed. I had another length cervix length done at 30 weeks and it was still normal. So there wasn't really anything to be to worry about. But it is something that I didn't know that you could get Braxton Hicks that early. Yeah. Um, and I've been midwife for so long and I never knew. So something for people to, you know, have in the back of their minds that that's a possibility and not to worry too much if that's what's going on, but always to check in with your midwife if you do. Yeah. And was it to the point where, you know, you had to to stop and breathe or were they just like pretty manageable or just tightening? They were were manageable, but I could definitely feel and see my whole uterus really tighten up, but it wasn't painful, but I could see it and I could feel it. But it turned out for me, it was actually really normal. I love how different we all are. Hey. Yeah. So you've done all this preparation, mind, body, you've done your research, made all these informed choices, and then you go into labor. What happens? So I went into labor at 38 and three, 
which um, was kind of, I mean, it's, it's full term, but it was a bit earlier than, you know, most first pregnancies because everybody's mm. always like to you, you know, you won't go early. Everyone thinks that they will, but it'll be 41 weeks. And I was like, oh, you know, I really hope you don't go over because, you know, too over because I don't want to be induced. That's like the last thing I would want. And the other thing I was really worried about is if my waters broke and I didn't go into labour, would I have to be induced? Mm. So they were like the two things I was worried about. So I would tell my belly every day, don't break your waters and go into labour after 38 weeks, but before 42 weeks. (laughs) I know it sounds crazy, (laughs) but I would say that to my tummy every day. And sure enough, at 38 and 3, I woke up that morning and I was having just some random, like I thought they were just Braxton Hicks contractions. And, um, but they were just a little bit more painful than, than what Braxton Hicks would be. So I was noticing them, but they weren't really hurting, if that makes sense. Hmm. And um, I went out about my day and, Getting towards the afternoon, they were starting to get slightly more painful, but I was starting to feel them in my back. Um, and I was like, oh, I've never felt anything like this before. Like, I think something might be happening. And they were coming like randomly about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes apart and just irregular, but I could feel this like pinch in my back. And I was like, oh, mm. I feel like something's happening. So I, um, you know, started doing my spinning babies and I thought, oh God, if it's in my back, maybe, she, you know, I knew that she wasn't in a great position and I had tried everything in this pregnancy to get her out of this position. I knew she was on my right side because that's just, she was always on the right side, the whole pregnancy. She was never on the left, which the left is the good side because mm. that's the, the more flexed side. And even at osteo, like I could always just feel her like her bum was stuck under my right rib and I kept saying to my osteo I'm like I feel like her bum is stuck and she can't get out of this position because she just no matter what I do won't move out of this right posterior position and I know that this is like the worst spot to start your labor in Mm -hmm. and so we worked really hard on like loosening all the ligaments underneath my ribs and everything to try and get her out of this position and she did pop in and out of that position I could feel sort of her move out from under that rib and then I was like great now try and get you to move anteriorly and then she'd pop under it and I was just like oh and actually funnily I had um when I went and had that cervical length done at 30 weeks um one of the obstetrician that did the scan for me did some 3Ds for me at work. And while she was trying to get the 3D pictures, I could see my baby like sort of throwing her head back into my pelvis. It was like she was diving backwards into my pelvis. And I'm like, oh, no, don't you go down the pelvis that way. You need to turn yourself around. So even from 30 weeks, I could see her. She was in the wrong position and very low down from early on I remember Melanie telling me at like 27 weeks like oh your baby's already you know getting low down there and I was like oh gosh you know try to back her up a little bit and spin her around if I could um so I tried everything in this pregnancy osteo spinning babies you name it to get this baby to move off my back but sure enough I went into labor 
mother and I could feel the back pain and I could feel her position and I just knew she was still on my back. So I um, whipped out the spinning babies again and tried, you know, last-ditch effort to try and move her. <laughs> and so I came home because I was out at my with my sister and I came home and I said to my husband, I said, um, I think something is happening and, you know, we might have a baby in the next day or so or at uh, this stage I was thinking, or back labor it's probably going to be prodromal labor maybe in a couple of days but I was like but just forget about it for now and this was probably like four o'clock in the afternoon so we had dinner and then at the dinner table I could feel the contraction starting to get um, a little bit stronger so I was like grabbing his knee under the table like oh I think something (laughs) might happen soon um but they were still kind of irregular nothing crazy. Um, and then probably by about 6.30, I said, I think I might just get in the shower because I feel like things are, you know, my back is really starting to hurt. I think I'm going to get into the shower. One of the things that I really wanted to do in this labour was not midwife myself. Mm. I really just wanted mm. to let the labour happen, not intervene, turn my brain off because is, you know, that's the thing that stops you, right? Your your thinking brain and not try and control everything. But, you know, being a midwife and being curious, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I'll just examine myself. I would like to see what my cervix is doing because if it's, you know, long and closed, then I'll just try and, you know, relax and go to bed. Um, but let's just see because I'm curious. I examined myself in the shower and I was already three to four centimetres and my cervix was really thin. Wow. So, yeah, and it had only been like a couple of hours of regular contractions and sometimes it takes a first-time mum days to get mm. to that. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is happening like and it's happening now. And my birth space hasn't wasn't ready yet either, the birth pool because I was only 38 weeks, Melanie hadn't left the birth pool yet. She's like, I'll bring it at next appointment. So I was like, oh, I think, you know, just call her and let her know this is what's happening. I'm okay. You know, but things are starting to kick off and like the birth pool's not here. And um, so I got out of the shower because, of course, the hot water system stopped working and we had no hot water. <gasps> no. Yeah. And when I got off the... F- when my husband got off the phone with her, I started bawling my eyes out because the water went cold and I was like freaking out because I was like, we don't have a birth pool. The water is cold. Why is everything happening so fast? I just had a little mini freak out and then I calmed down. <laughs> just one of those hormonal freak outs. Mm. And then so I got out and um, just started preparing my birth space because it wasn't really ready yet. So I had just to put all my little twinkle lights out and all of that and um, put my AirPods in with my hypnobirthing tracks. I put my um, diffuser on with the Clary Sage and the birthday space was coming together. All I needed was the bath and things were getting really nice. And I knew I wanted to have my sister with me for the birth because I was there for both her births. I also called one of my friends who used to work with me but now works um, in MGP, so group practice, and she also really loves home birth. And I was like, oh, she'll really love to be at a home birth. I'm going to tell her to come over. So I got them two over 
And we were all just sort of sitting around and laughing. I was sitting on the birthing ball and it was really quite a beautiful early labour setting instead of, you know, that typical, oh, my God, I'm in labour, let's get to the hospital, run around type thing. Um, it was just really calm and relaxing and, you know, we were having some snacks and my friend Angela came over and did some more spin babies with me and it was just really relaxed and beautiful, just exactly how I wanted it to be. And then I also hired a photographer who did some amazing photos for us um, and she came shortly after I put my TENS machine on and that was great. So for the back pain, because, yeah, I was still getting all the contractions at the back. I couldn't really feel anything at the front. So I put the TENS machine on and that really helped. After a while, those the contractions in my back were starting to get pretty intense and I thought, look, the birth pool is not here. Call the midwives back and tell them I think it's time to come over um, and bring the pool because we're going to need time to blow it up and fill it. We're going to have to boil all the pots and the kettles in the house and fill up the bathtub, <laughs> which we did have to do, um, and we filled up the bathtub. Um, so I got into our bathtub and as soon as I got into the bathtub, things just hit like another level. Mm-hmm. Things got really intense. The contractions started coming like, you know, every, you know, it's about three and ten minutes um, and really strong in my back and I started to become really quite vocal and um, my, uh, my midwife, Melanie, arrived around quarter past 11 at that stage. I really just needed counter pressure on my back as hard as anybody could push on my back. That's just the only thing I felt I needed in my back. Really felt like the, nothing was helping. I needed someone to help my back. Couldn't feel anything at the front. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't know what a front labor felt like. And so when they came, when she came, she just, you know, crept in quietly. The, the lights were still off. It was just the music and the diffuser going and everybody was pretty silent. It was really nice. And it's just so different to being in a hospital. Like even if you're a midwife that's really calm, like has a really calm energy and keeps everything dark and how we're supposed to birth, we're not supposed to birth with bright lights on and people coming in and interrupting us and taking us out of that you know mammal brain 100%. Um, and yeah. uh, like even if yeah you have the nicest midwife and you know you've set up the room it's still a hospital and a lot of women or a lot of people have subconscious negative associations with hospitals yeah and just hearing the woman next door to you and thinking oh my god am I, I'm on the clock at the moment When's the doctor going to come in and say, you know, this is taking too long? What are they going to want to do next? Yeah. Um, so I just felt so, besides the back pain, I felt so comfortable and so relaxed in my own environment with, you know, this is exactly what I wanted. I just wanted to birth my baby and I didn't want any of that noise, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, yeah, so she came in and, you know, she just knelt down beside me next to the bath and said you know hi I'm here and how are you going and she said you know would you like me to listen to your baby and I said yeah of course have a listen it's none of this you know you have to lie on your back now so I can do this x y and z you know what I mean Mm. it was everything is a is a choice do you want me to listen to your baby 
which I just feel like it's just, the, you know, that's how it should be, right? Yeah. I don't know. And everything was fine with, with the baby. I didn't know if it was a boy or girl at this stage. I had the strongest inclination that I was having a boy. The whole pregnancy, I was convinced, <laughs> like utterly convinced. From the second I found out I was pregnant, I was like, it's a boy for sure, 100%. So that was a good surprise. Yeah. Um, and things just went from about zero to 100 pretty much after she arrived. And um, I examined myself again in the bath at about half past midnight and I was five centimetres. And I, I thought, you know what, I know I'm only five centimetres, but this is the start of labour now. So don't think about anything else. This is labour and you don't know where you're going. So that's the thing with vaginal examinations. You never know, like one second you could be five centimetres and the next second you could be fully dilated. Or, you know, it might be six hours and you're still five centimetres. So vaginal exams, although I did them, they don't tell you really anything, which is what a lot of people don't understand about about them, I guess. It's more just knowing. But really, is it going to change anything? Probably not. I'm sure you've seen in practice as well how that can even just shift the mum's mindset. You know, she's thinking she's progressing. It's been quite a long time. And then she's told, you know, you're only X amount of centimetres and that can just be so deflating. Yeah, for sure. And I knew that myself, but I also knew that, you know, this is the start of labour now. Things can escalate and, you, you know, you can dilate so much faster than, you know, what they say that textbook a centimetre an hour it's not really you know and it's so subjective some someone might examine you and say oh you're five centimetres and somebody else might examine you and say no you're six or seven so you know what does it really mean it doesn't really mean anything yeah it's just something for um, women to consider actually do they really want to have them and it's always an option to say no yeah exactly um, so at that point I was like, okay, five centimeters, I'm, you know, at the active stage of labor, here I am midwifing myself, let's go, let's do this. Um, and I said to them, okay, give me sterile water injections. Cause I need something to help me with my back. Oh, yeah. I want to like, hear I, about this. I, yeah. I have like, I'm a really big advocate for them at work because I have seen them work so well on some women, like from a pain score of 10 to a pain score of like one or two in their back after like 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, great. You know what? I've got this really bad back pain. If I just have these injections in a couple of minutes, I'm not going to feel this back pain anymore. It'll be fine. Like I've seen it work so many times so well. And even though it hurts, I've seen women ask for it again and again, because it works so, so well. So um, Melanie and Angela, they did the they started to do the sterile water injections. And for some reason, I don't know, they started. And when they started, I screamed and told them to stop, which I really wish that they had not because I only got one out of the four that you're supposed to have injections in and it didn't work at all. So I was a little bit upset by that um, because obviously it was painful and I just wish that they would have just been like no just wait one second till we get them in just like um but yeah they stopped and yeah so I only got the one in and it didn't do anything Mm -hmm. um which I feel like maybe could have been a bit of a turning point for me if that had have worked 
fact, you know, things might have gone a little bit differently. I'm not sure. You'll never know. And so then at that stage, after that injection, I was getting a bit like out of control almost. Um, I couldn't use any of my breathing. I couldn't use anything that I'd learned in hypnobirthing. The only thing that I found that gave me any relief was literally to scream and Mm. for someone to push really hard on my back. So we decided to get out of the bath because it just felt like things were not working and just to try some new, some different positions out in the lounge and the birth pool was up and ready by then. So we got out of the main bathroom, went to the lounge room and we tried to do some more spinning babies, um, but I just felt really out of control, which was really surprising because I've seen women in labour hundreds and hundreds of times and I never... I've never seen anyone behave the way that I could see myself behaving and how I felt. Mm. And I just felt like something was wrong because I've never seen this before. I've never seen somebody, you know, scream for their, because their back is hurting so much. Maybe because we're in a hospital setting, when people get to that stage, they're like, give me an epidural and they get an epidural and then they don't get to that point if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like everything I learned from hypnobirthing all just went out the window. I was just screaming the entire time. And it was like the last thing that I wanted, but it was literally the only way I could cope. Can I just say before I even knew your story, I saw your photos and in every single photo, a (laughs) different person is doing counter pressure. And I was like, oh, posterior like you could just tell it was the most excruciating back pain I just never thought that it would be like that you know and I've seen so many women give birth without any pain relief and they have a contraction and they really work hard through it but they weren't they weren't like me and I was like am I really like do I really have that bad of a pain tolerance I don't like I don't think so And I was just, every time a contraction would come, I would just scream for someone to just push on my back as hard as possible, please. So then I got back into the other bath and the birthing pool. um, And that gave me some relief again with the hot water. And it was quite nice. I stayed in there for a little bit. And then I, um, being the midwife again, decided to examine myself again because I was like, something is like out of control here. Something is wrong. And so I was five centimeters at, 1230 and at 1255 I had an anterior lip so that's really fast for someone's labor for a first time so in 25 minutes I'd gone from five to essentially like nine and a half so no wonder I was screaming like a crazy person Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I thought okay I'm almost there I can do this I know it's hurting the baby is fine I still had my membranes intact and they were really bulging actually. Um, So that's really what I could feel was this big sack of waters in front Mm. um, and just a little lip of cervix at the top. I was like, yes, I can do this. I'm almost there. Now all I have to do is just that little bit of the cervix has to go and then I just have to push her out. You know, it won't take that long. It'll be okay. I can do this. I can handle this pain for a little bit longer. You know, if I was still five centimetres, I would have been like, no, I need an epidural. you know things were progressing and and quickly as well and then from there basically it just stayed the same it was really bad back pain and nothing was happening my water still hadn't broken I couldn't didn't have any pressure in my bum that I had to push 
And it just stayed like that. And I was just getting more distressed as time went on. Um, at that time, when I found myself to be an anterior lip, the second midwife, Emma, she came um, for the birth. And um, she said she could hear me from the street, essentially. <laughs> and when she came in, she just said, like, you know, is this normal? Like, is she okay? Do we need to do something else? And basically anything anyone told me to do, I just couldn't do anything besides scream. Mm. Um, so they decided um, that Melanie would examine me and see if I was fully dilated where the baby's head was and, you know, like how much longer is this going to be? So at about 2.30 she examined me and I was fully dilated and the head was still a little bit high. So we had made we made the decision together that I would go into hospital, mainly just to have some pain relief for my back just so I could rest it was the most excruciating but also the fastest ambulance ride I've ever been in I was gonna say how was that how was that ride oh it was not pretty Mm. I think the ambulance officers said like because where we were living we were closer to one hospital than the other and I wanted to go to the hospital where I worked because I knew everybody there and I felt comfortable Mm. and they were like so we'll take you to this hospital and I was like no you'll take me to this hospital and they were like okay (laughs) (laughs) they didn't even bother arguing with me because they were like oh this girl's not messing around yeah um so my midwife Melanie she came in the ambulance with me and um my husband and my sister and Ange followed in the car behind us and um yeah they just lied me on my side on the bed in the ambulance and Melanie just put counter pressure on my back and I screamed the 10 minute drive to the hospital And then I screamed through the whole of the emergency department and then we got into the lift to get up to the birthing unit and I was like, okay, Olivia, you cannot screen your head off as you're going through the birthing unit because everybody you know is going to be there. You need to just chill it. So I said to to the ambulance people, I'm like, okay, I'm getting contraction now, but as soon as it's over, you have to get me in and into the room so that nobody can see me screaming. (laughs) <laughs> so I had my one last contraction in the elevator and then we went in and um, obviously everyone, you know, knew me there and I had two of my work colleagues and they were fabulous and they came in. And um, so when we, when we got there, um, they examined me and they said, look, you know, the head is not too far back. It's probably at plus one. So, you know, let's just break your waters and start pushing. And at this point I'd like, they gave me some gas and um, I had <laughs> I had told my midwife in the ambulance, I was like, can you call ahead, tell them to have the anaesthetist and have the obstetrician that's going to come in for me to be there when I'm there, <laughs> ready and waiting. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know, but the anaesthetist was there ready and waiting, but they were like, oh, the head's just there. Let's just push the baby out. Don't worry about it. So I was just like, okay, whatever. I'll just start pushing. And so they broke my waters and the baby was fine and I tried to start pushing, but I couldn't actually push her because the back pain was overtaking everything. Mm. Like, I don't know, it's just really strange because they, what they say is when you start pushing, it takes over the pain kind of. It's, yes. Sometimes it feels better. Yes. But for me, I didn't feel any better. I couldn't push because I could, couldn't get this back pain to go away Mm. so I was just screaming I was like no I can't push my back is hurting too much 
where's the doctor? So anyway, he, he came maybe about 10 minutes after I had gotten there. And so we decided that since she was low enough, let's just do a vacuum and just get her out because I was just over it by then. Mm. Um, and so he came in and we set up and he put the, the vacuum cup on and it, as soon as I pushed, the vacuum cup fell off. So we were like, okay, we'll try one more time and put the vacuum cup back on. Second push just fell straight off. So I was like, okay, so she's probably stuck um, because she's mm-hmm. not coming out with the vacuum. The obstetrician was like, I think you need to go to theatres and you need to have some proper anaesthetic and then we can try a forceps there. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, the other option, only other option is to have a cesarean. And obviously this is like the last thing that I wanted, mm-hmm. you know, wanting a nice home birth with no intervention. Yeah. Um, and at that point I was like, whatever, just do whatever you want. So they took me off to theatres and um, they set me up for the spinal. And when they were putting the anaesthetic on my back, it was really stinging. And I was like, well, what are you doing to my back? And I'm like, no, we just put an anaesthetic on. And I was like, well, it's really hurting. And um, which it normally shouldn't hurt. Mm. But um, I later realised it was hurting because my back, the skin had been rubbed off from how hard everybody had been rubbing on my back for me. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't even feel I was like literally having my skin rubbed off. That's how, you know, intense that feeling was. Um, so, yeah, they put the spinal in and I laid down and I thought, oh, my God, I'm a human being again. I just instantly was like, the best feeling I've ever had when that pain, back pain went away. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, usually I don't really like to talk about labour as painful, but I feel like that wasn't a normal labour pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A pathological pain that that you shouldn't, like a normal progressing labour doesn't feel. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, they put the spinal in and, um he had to use two different types of forceps to get her out. So the first set was to turn her from posterior, which she was deflexed OP, to anterior, and then the second set to birth her head. Um, and I had an episiotomy with that as because yeah. forceps can be a little bit nasty on the, the pelvic floor. And out popped this little baby of 2.9 kilos, and um, one of the midwives said, it's a girl. And I was like, what? Are you sure? <laughs> I was convinced it was a boy. And it, she was like, yeah, it's a girl. I was like, oh, my God, really? And I was, you know, just so shocked. Yeah. So, such a nice surprise. Yeah. Wow. And this and little thing, was- 2.9 yeah. kilos and causing all that grief, hey? Oh, my God. See, <laughs> you just positioning, it's positioning. everything. Oh, and I, yeah. But I just feel like. You know, I think you always say you learn something from every birth. Yeah. And I think what I had to learn from this birth is that you can't control everything. You can try as hard as you can. Like I tried to make her not posterior as hard Mm -hmm. as I could. And at the end of the day, the baby chose its her position, didn't she? And I didn't do anything about it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think then a lot of people say, oh, well, then what's the point of doing all these things if you can't control it? But, I mean, you can't really control anything in life, but wouldn't you rather say that, look, I did everything I possibly could 
I can't look back and on my pregnancy and my preparation with regrets because I literally did everything possible. And this is just the way that it turned out rather than thinking, oh, you know, oh, I could have done this or I could have done that. You know what I mean? hundred percent. Because if I hadn't done that prep work and the birth went the way, the way it did, I feel like I would have, you know, blamed myself the entire time for saying, you know, thinking, you know, you didn't do the prep work. You didn't do the work. This is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas at least now I know like I did everything I could and this is just the way that she was meant to be born because, you know, potentially, you know, who knows, maybe it's just the way it is for a reason. And it, you know, sort of turned out that, yeah, she did need to be born in a hospital um, because she had to go to NICU for a couple of days. Yeah. So maybe that's the way it is. So she came out fine. Apgar's a man in nine. She was screaming and perfect and pink and we did the delayed cord clamping and she had skin to skin and came to recovery with me for breastfeeding and it was all great but yeah she had to go to NICU because she had ABO jaundice which means when your blood groups are different sometimes they can get a more severe form of jaundice so she yeah so she spent the first night with me um on a billy bed which is like a little blue light blanket that they can put onto the baby so she had to stay like mostly in her cot with this blue blanket on but at least she was still with me and then they tested her levels again the next morning and they hadn't gone down and they were getting worse so they said no we need to take her up to NICU and I was like great so I've now not had the birth that I wanted now my baby's being taken away Mm. you know and I knew she had to go because she needed treatment but um, it was really hard actually being separated. So I can, you know, fully understand how these NICU parents who were there for, you know, weeks and weeks must feel. And it was only a couple of days for me. Yeah. Um, and she did really well in a couple of days. She came back down with me and uh, we ended up leaving on day five. Wow. And how, what was your postpartum care like? When I gave birth, it was in May, end of May, they hadn't, there was no lockdown at that point, mm. um, but the visiting in the hospital was still pretty strict. So Melanie was able to come and see me once in the hospital. Oh, wow. Um, and then she came and saw me at home every week. And then the last appointment was at six weeks. Um, the great thing about having a private midwife is that postnatal care. Like yeah. if you gave birth in the hospital with like just normal hospital care or um you know, even an obstetrician, they see you while you're in hospital and then see you later, i see you in six weeks. Yeah, yeah. Like take care of the baby, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> like what the hell? Mm, this mm-hmm. massive life events just happened to you. You've got this little person and, you know, yeah. bye, see you later. <laughs> Hope for the best. And I can imagine, or I'm assuming here, that, you know, given that you had a bit of separation, she had jaundice, and was in NICU, you probably needed that breastfeeding support, right? Yeah. And actually breastfeeding was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Um, I found I've got really quite short nipples and I found it really painful. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, it's supposed to hurt in the first couple of weeks, but it just never got any better. So I ended up having to use nipple shields yep. for a while. And it really didn't get any better till about a month after. That took me by surprise because I just thought, you know, it shouldn't be that 
bad. Like obviously your nipples need to toughen up a little bit, but I was like, you know, maybe a week or two should be okay. But yeah, it took a good four weeks before I felt like I could feed her without using a shield or clenching my jaw. Yeah. But yeah, the midwifery care at home is great. She comes to your house. You can message her anytime, you know, of the day with questions you have. Um, so it was really nice. And I didn't have to leave my house to do any of that. Because I'm wow. a big believer in the culture of postpartum um, in Australia, especially, is really weird. Like you just had a baby and, well, I don't know, this is sort of our world culture. You're expected to, you know, cater to everybody that comes over to visit you, if that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, make sure you go and serve tea and coffee to your visitors after you've just had a baby. Yeah. Um, and you're recovering like it, and yeah, like learning how to feed. The other way around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, the episiotomy took a while to heal. It was quite painful. I had to use ice blocks like every day just yeah. for that burning. Um, but I did go and see a pelvic floor physio, which was great. And she said, um, you know, everything's gone really well. Like you're recovering really well. She said, whoever was your obstetrician knows what they're doing I was like great <laughs> that's good yeah and hopefully yeah. all that uh, that pelvic floor preparation that you did all those exercises hopefully that helped with your recovery yeah you're a superstar I when I heard you, just the summary I mean this is the first time I'm hearing the full story but when I heard the summary of your story I was like geez she is amazing I because I know and I, I, I think some people will relate to this kind of posterior persistent posterior positioning where you know you think you have like it's intense you think surely I must be far along now and you get to the hospital and you're you know only a few centimeters um I just know anecdotally of a lot of of that happening to a lot of people and then you know that they've needed to get an epidural but the fact that you stayed at home till you were fully dilated and you got through all of that like that's crazy you definitely yeah, don't have was. a low pain threshold and that's also probably why you were screaming your head off <laughs> yeah probably yeah I was and look it really took me by surprise but I've also learned that you know sometimes an epidural is needed yes and yeah sometimes you just the amount of encouragement you can give somebody at the end of the day sometimes they just need it and yeah. not not everybody does and a lot of the time, good midwifery care can stop, well, not stop, but, you know, not need, you're not needing an epidural when you have really good support, but sometimes you bloody need it. Yep. <laughs> and <laughs> I think, you know, this this birth has probably made you a better mother and it's going to make you a better midwife too. Yeah, I'm definitely a, a lot more understanding of, you know, of um, women, you know, not that I wasn't before, I was, but yeah, I feel like if you don't, actually know what it feels like you can never really understand as much as you can be supportive you can't fully understand until you know that feeling but it it did take me quite a while to debrief my birth with myself if that makes sense yep yep yeah I had a lot of you know back and forth about you know maybe I should have done this and maybe I should have done that and why did I go to the hospital and you know maybe if I went earlier and had an epidural earlier what would have happened but you know you just have to just accept it for what it is and you know next time I'm still going to try and make sure I don't have a posterior baby but <laughs> I would have another one again and it's just yeah. it is what it is isn't it and um having someone to talk to about your birth 
is really important as well, which I feel like a lot of women probably don't and yeah. probably sit there and wonder why things happened the way they did and, you know, blame themselves unnecessary when really you shouldn't. And was there any resources in particular that helped or speaking to um, a particular professional? I just spoke to my midwife. Mm. Um, like, obviously, most of my friends are midwives, so it was, <laughs> you know, good to have people to lean on. But, you know, I really loved birth photography and it took me a really long time to actually look at birth photography again. Wow. Because um, I felt like I was grieving the fact that I didn't have a home birth like something that I had prepared myself, you know, really, really desperately wanted. Um, So, yeah, it took quite a while for me to even, you know, look at it again. Like I used to be obsessed looking at birth photography and birth videos on my phone Um, because there's so many beautiful things out there. Mm -hmm. And I just really couldn't look at it for a while. So I feel like probably a lot of women feel that way and just don't express themselves and they really should because I think it helps. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people will will relate to that. Yeah, because, you know, they say that old chestnut, you know, but you and your baby are healthy, Mm. what are you complaining about? But it's so much more than it's not black and white and Mm. birth is more holistic than, you know, physical. It's really mental and, and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah, not just a physically healthy mum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And to someone, you know, maybe having a home birth or a birth without, um, without any pain medication to someone might be horrific to them. Yes, it's and not about so- how the birth went per se. Yeah. It's more about how how mum felt. So yeah, it's not like right. a, an emergency cesarean is an automatic traumatic birth. Yeah, um, for some yeah. people, having an epidural is their ideal birth, and That's right. and you know, I never, I never really used to understand when someone would come in and have a birth really fast and everything went really normal, and they had this baby, and then they were so upset that they didn't get an epidural, mm. and I used to think, why, like, why are you upset? You know, like you've just had this perfect birth in my eyes, yeah. but to to me, a perfect birth is not the same as somebody else, yeah. and so yeah, at the end of the day, it's basically. It, it is what you want your birth to be and not what it needs to look like to somebody else. Love that. There's been an increased interest in home births, particularly with COVID and COVID restrictions. But I know just from speaking to some friends and clients that a lot of their hesitation has been in, you know, what happens if there's an emergency? What happens if I need to transfer to the hospital? So what would you say to these women who are thinking about a home birth but are worried about needing to transfer? Transfer really was pretty seamless. The, when If you're going to transfer, if it's not an emergency like mine, wasn't an emergency, they just ring an ambulance, the ambulance comes and picks you up and you go to the hospital and they admit you like any other person. And it would work the same, I guess, in an emergency situation. An ambulance comes, picks you up and takes you. And really when you're having a home birth, if everything is normal, when something becomes abnormal, it's quite obvious. And usually you don't get into the point where it's an emergency and you need to get to hospital, you know, right now. So the midwives will always preempt like, okay, I think this is not going the way it should be going. You know, like, for example, maybe she's starting to get a fever and baby's starting to sound a little bit, you know, like it's working a little bit harder than it should. We need to transfer now before things become complicated. Yes. And that's really what a good successful home birth is, is 
when you transfer appropriately and in in the right time. Yeah. And also I feel like I know that a lot of women are considering a home birth at the moment because of the restrictions, but also a home birth is not something that you should take lightheartedly. It's not something that you should say, oh, I'm just going to give birth at home because I want X, Y, and Z at my birth. It is something that you really need to consider all the factors about having a home birth and it to be something that you really want and not just as a, well, if I can't have this, I'm just going to do this type of situation because it does take a lot of trust in yourself, in your care provider and um, in your body, really. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, physical, emotional, spiritual work that needs to go into that so you kind of have to commit to that work I think before committing to a home birth yeah because I just feel like I feel like a lot of women at the moment are wanting a home birth because of they're not wanting to go into the hospital um and I feel like they may get a little bit taken back by you know okay well you can't have an epidural at home you can't have this at home you know you really need to do your your research and make sure that this is the right option for you Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you so much for those tips and for sharing your birth story. Thanks so much, Olivia, for joining us. Bye. Bye.